Born just a few years after the establishment of the Jewish State of Israel, her name means a blessing. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, the child of a Holocaust survivor whose father was the only member of his immediate family to survive Auschwitz. Among the first of many Jews to settle in Israel after the war, she is called a Sabra, a member of the first generation of children born in Israel after World War II. As a child, her father taught her to be resilient. Here's what he said. We have given you, our children, a home, a place to put down roots, and you will show the world that no matter how many times we are put down, we will rise again. Her memoir, Soldier On, tells the story of a life steeped in resilience. Her name is Bracka Horovitz, and this is her story. Bracka, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kendi. So glad to be here. I haven't seen you in a few years. You look fantastic. I can't imagine how you're feeling these days. You're far from your homeland. Can you give us a firsthand view on the war as an Israeli? Far physically, but very, very close with my mind and my soul. Constantly follow the news, watching, listening to both American and Israeli news. I have lots of relatives, lots of friends that I am in touch on a daily basis. I feel devastated. I know that my father fought in the Independence Day. I know that my late husband fought in the Six-Day War, and he was wounded in the Sinai Peninsula. And I'm saying to myself, until when? And it seems that probably we are not attacking the problem in the right way. And maybe this time, 70 years after the establishment of the Jewish state, maybe now we'll have a solution that will solve the problem there once and for good. The spirit in Israel is amazing. I think that the Israelis, the army, will prevail we are going to succeed. The question is, what kind of a political arrangement we are going to get after this war? Well, let's go back to you growing up in Israel when there wasn't a war at the time. You grew up in an idyllic town, steeped in biblical history. And in your book, you describe it so beautifully. It's the home of John the Baptist of Mary's Spring. Can you paint us a picture of your hometown and pronounce it for us, if you would. The village I grew in is south of Jerusalem, and it's called En Karim. The views was incredible, a lot of trees and a lot of flowers. It was all wild. The house that I grew up had dates, trees, pomegranate trees, and just a lot of sabras, which is a cactus. It's a local cactus that we enjoyed eating. It was so beautiful, so quiet, and so holy. We were surrounded by many churches, so we used to hear the bells ringing. The spring, what we call the Mayan, which was right around the corner from us, and all the vegetables and the fruits, it was a beginning of an agricultural settlement, which my father was one of the founders 
Well, his goal when he came to Israel was to create this new life. And he was, like you said, one of the first people to teach others about agriculture and to figure out how to grow things in such a rocky landscape. Like so many Holocaust survivors, though, your father did not talk about what he went through. He was a Polish Jew until one day you asked him why you didn't have grandparents. And he told you his story. Can you share that with our audience today? I asked him, how is it possible that I don't have grandparents? And he had a hard time answering me. He was questioning whether I learned anything at school. It was obviously a protective reaction of a father to his daughter that meant so much for him. He just had a hard time explaining parts of the Holocaust that he was part of. And this is where later on, of course, it provoked my curiosity. And we learned a little bit about the Holocaust. And as we grew older, we learned more and more about the Holocaust. Well, in fact, he was the only member of his immediate family to survive and to walk out of those camps. In your book, there is a story about your father standing on a line in the camps, people being sent to the left or to the right. Tell us that story. Yeah, I was always puzzled by this story. My father sort of felt a little proud for him being chosen to go to a labor camp because he felt that he was strong and resilient. And I always felt that there was something different. My father had this amazing, beautiful, blue, glowing eyes. And I think that when the German officer looked at him, one or two of them, they just couldn't send him to a death camp. There was something about his expression that provokes some innocence, some consciousness. And I think that that's why he probably was survived. Your dad was a member of what was called the Pioneer Generation during the early years of the new Israel, the Jewish state. What was that mindset like? How did he describe those early days? This idea of starting everything from the beginning, the idea of having the opportunity to rebuild, not to hold any feelings about what happened in the past, to push aside all the atrocities, all the sadness, and turn it into a something new, exciting, being able to do something, to build something with so much Zionism, mm. with so much vision about a new country, a new state that's going to be for the Jewish people from all over the world. Tell us a little bit about your family life, your mom and your sister. What was life like in your house? It was very different than today. There was no TV, there was an old radio, and there was a lot of being together, a lot of time spent together. We had to go to school, obviously. We had homework. We came home. And the smells in the house <laughs> of cooking. Your mom was quite the Ma cook, right? She was quite a cook. She was a great believer that what you eat is who you are. Food is a very important part of life. This is a way for her to express love by giving, by preparing, by buying and spending all this effort and time into making something that's essential 
This is essential. When you think about what a child needs, of course a child needs someone to read them a story and talk to them and play with them. But before all of this, a child needs to eat. And this was the priority at the time. Describe what it meant as you were growing up to be a Sabra, which was the next generation. And I know your feelings about being a Sabra changed as you were growing older. A Sabra means it's a cactus, and it means prickly from outside, but sweet from inside. And the idea is, it's a metaphoric idea that you're supposed to be resilient and tough from outside, but very affectionate and warm inside. And the combination of the two is what an Israeli needs to be. And it's up to today. I have a hard time complaining. <laughs> I have a hard time admitting that it's difficult or hard because it's the way we were educated. You don't complain. You just attack everything and you go through it with resilience. All Israelis, male and female, must serve in the military. We know that from the news today. It's called the IDF. You had to learn about land navigation and you had to march forever and ever and all the exercises, jumping out of airplanes included. Tell us about how old you were and what that experience was like for you. How did it change you? Here we are, 18 years old. You're graduating from high school and you're going to the military. You know that you're going to be serving your country for two years, you're going to become an adult, a mature person with all the training for two years. And of course, after this one, you go to college. You either get married or you go to college. But these two years were very pivotal for me because it's the whole idea of giving something to your country. You're part, a small part, a big part, a minor part of contributing to society. And the second part is you become a mature, strong adult. I guess that this military training is still carrying me all the way through my life. It's this being a strong individual being able to deal with any obstacles or any challenges that coming along your way. Well, when you were 18, one of your colleagues entered you, unbeknownst to you, into the Miss Israel contest. Take us back into that time in your life. It was actually very chaotic <laughs> and very exciting at the time. This came as a surprise. I figured, why not? Let's try it. And I got a lot of attention in the base where I was living at the time. And this provoked a big dilemma for me because it's something that I never felt comfortable. Although I was blessed with good looks, I never felt that this is a part of me that I want to be looked at. The image of being beautiful was not important for me as an image of being smart and successful in the academic world. So I just looked at it as an experience, as something that will come and go, and it was fabulous, I have to say. I learned a lot of things there. As you were coming into your own as a young woman, you wanted to have children, but you also very clearly wanted to have a career and develop your own life. 
This was part of the Israeli mentality. You wanted to do it all. You want to be a mother. You want to have few children. You wanted to get married early. And you wanted to hold a career. And all these elements, you were supposed to play and balance together in your life. And that's the reason why I was eager to get married when I was 20. I was eager to go to college and graduate after three years. I was ready to have a large family. And the reason for having a large family, as you know, Candy was mentioned in the book, was for two reasons. One was to compensate on all those who got lost during the Holocaust. Secondly, I wanted to populate the country. I wanted to have more kids living and being born in Israel. I think I read in the book that originally you wanted to have six children, and obviously you were doing your patriotic duty, but you're also very much in love with this man named Zvi who kind of swept you off your feet a little bit and surprised you when you were falling in love with him. A very strong man. Talk to us a little bit about your late husband, Zvi. So Zvi was five years older than me. He was a captain in the military, and he was wounded in the Sinai during the Six-Day War. Zvi was a man of the world. He knew a lot. He was strong. He was brave. He was always there to help, and he loved life, never complained. And I guess we felt that we both had the same goal. We both wanted to have large families. We were devoted to the country. We were devoted to our parents. We were devoted to our future family. You also had textile engineering in common as well. He had already gotten a degree. His parents had a textile company. You got your degree. So that really brought the two of you together. Very quickly, you had two little girls and you had a very successful company of your own. Talk to us about that. Exactly. So when I graduated from Shankar College, which was a textile engineering slash fashion designing college, I started my own business and it was mostly women and children apparel. And at the time, the customers were different boutiques in the Tel Aviv area. And it was very satisfying because it allowed me to be able to accommodate with my time and having two young daughters, as well as fulfill my creativity, creating things, designing things. Well, with two little girls and a thriving career, your husband came home one night and said he had had an incredible job offer to come to Boston and to be a part of a very famous manufacturing company called Malden Mills. You landed in Boston. What was your first reaction to the city and to being in America? First reaction was experience, something new that we can add into our life experience I felt that this is an opportunity to have and enriching us culturally. And I was able to maybe improve my English, which we all... (laughs) Which, by the way, is excellent. (laughs) Thank you very much. Which we all take English in school. Anyone in Israel learn English. But this was an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to grow from cultural way, 
pick up another language for the girls and an opportunity for Tzvi to broaden his expertise in the textile technology arena. Malden Mills became very famous for polar tech. Tell us a little bit about what his job was at Malden Mills. So Tzvi was recruited to be the director of R&D in Malden Mills. Basically, this was including finding new materials for different applications. And one of them was the Polotech material. While you were here in the States, the original idea was you were only going to stay here for one year because you didn't want to be away from Israel for too long. You gave birth to a son named Ron. Tell us that story. It's what kept you here. Ronnie was born in 78, and he completely changed our path in life. All the plans were shredded. It was as if you have a painting of your life, and you have an intruder coming into the room and pours black paint all over your painting, your life painting. And the dilemma is, what do you do now? What we decided to do, both Tzvi and myself, is to work with the paintings, to work with the black paint that was poured over this maybe beautiful, pastoralic, idealistic painting that we had and try to make it a different one and maybe a better one. When you have a disabled child like Ronnie was, what do you learn about life? Ronnie was, just for the audience to explain, Ronnie was severely disabled physically and mentally. And originally, you live in a dilemma of acceptance. You have a hard time accepting that this child is going to be far away from normal. And you're trying to fix this person. You're trying to make him better and normal as possible. And it took me quite a while, maybe a year, to understand that Ronnie is going to have a problem for the rest of his life. And it's not something that can be fixed. How many children did you have? At the time, we had only the two girls and Ronnie. And when Ronnie was about four years old, and we realized, obviously, Ronnie was a fluke genetic issue, and we wanted to have a large family. So we decided to have another son, and four years later, we had another son. So we had altogether five kids. Ronnie was the middle son, and our life was pretty much evolved around Ronnie. This was the reason we decided to stay in the United States and raise the family here and be able to provide Ronnie with all the programs and all the facilities and all the activities that are available out there to make him as advanced as possible. How did your children help you with their own brother? I don't know if they have a choice. (laughs) They didn't have a choice. They grew up with Ronnie. Ronnie was part of the family. They had to accept Ronnie with all the difficulties because it's not easy to have a brother that has so many issues. 
you have to have strong personality to be able to deal with it and feel comfortable with it. And um, they all loved Ronnie. They all contributed to have Ronnie in the family. And I have to thank each one of them in their own way. And we still think about Ronnie and talk about Ronnie. Losing Ron. Yeah. Um, Ronnie passed away when he was 39 and a half. He wasn't supposed to live more than a year. He somehow survived. He had a very unique spirit and soul. He was a charming man, and he loved life. A happy individual, and he somehow lingered (laughs) to 39 and a half. And when he passed away, it was something that he probably needed. I didn't want him to suffer anymore. And uh, he was born with one kidney. Kidney failed. And this was a time for Ronnie to say goodbye. He taught each one of us and everybody that knew him major lessons in life. How to love, how to be compassionate, how to feel, how to be able to shave superficiality of life and look at something that's very deeper, a light in someone without voice. You've had so many losses. Then you lost V as well. What have you learned about loss and resiliency? I learned never to say, why me? I said, why not me? It's if things happened and nobody knows why they happened, you just have to deal with it. And it's a waste of time and energy to dwell on why me. When Tzvi passed away, I was able to accept all the good memories and all the good experiences that I had with him. And we followed up the theme that we both were raised up with, resilience. We have to move on. We have to keep the spirit up, running, and not to dwell on things that weren't so great. When you were a little girl, your greatest hope was to please your father. Looking back on your life, where you stand now, what would he think? He probably would want me to share with him more than I shared with him because he had a big heart and probably a lot of compassion. And it was a very interesting dance that we both dance around each other. He wanted to protect me, and I wanted to protect him. Again, this was the times. Looking at it now, I wish we had more open communication. He would be able to share with me some of his childhood memories, not the good ones, also the bad ones. And I could share with him how difficult it was to have a first boy born with so many problems. And he probably would be a best person to comfort me with it. But I missed this opportunity. How did you preserve your Jewish heritage by raising your children in the United States of America? We tried to keep some of the tradition alive. 
So we celebrated the main holidays. We joined a local temple, Temple Emmanuel in Andover, and I became involved in Adassa organization. Kids went to Hebrew school, and we celebrated every Friday, a Friday night ceremony, which was very unique. And the kids knew that this is a special day for all of us to be together and celebrate the Shabbat. As you look back on your life, have you had a role model, Raka? I really think that the role model was my father. He was a person that was always happy. He was resilient. He had this charming smile. He was very adaptive to any issues. He loved people. He loved to comfort people. He loved to help people. And he wanted to build. He wanted to create. He was looking forward, always looking forward, moving forward, without dwelling or feeling bad about anything that happened to him in the past. How did becoming a mother change you? Becoming a mother basically was my dream since I remember myself. All I wanted to do is, when I was young, I was playing with dolls. <laughs> and this is who I was. I felt like this is who I am. This is the reason why I am here in this world. I'm here to be a mother. I love the feeling. Motherhood showed me how to be giving, how to be loving, how to love, how to expect love and how to give up of yourself for the sake of your children. Next three questions we ask everybody who sits where you are today. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? So, Candy, I don't get around it. <laughs> I go through it. <laughs> I love you asking me this question. I'm so passionate about this one. When you have any trouble, any obstacle, any hardship, the most important thing is to look at it, evaluate it, grasp it, understand it, and go through it. Face it and go through it. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice you've ever received, and can you pass that along to our listeners today? You have dreams, you have hopes, you want to do things, you do it now. And these are the three things. First, you have to help yourself. You have to feel good about yourself. You have to be strong. Once you are strong and you feel a whole, this is where you need to step out of yourself and help others. And the last part is now. If you want to do anything, you want to volunteer, you want to give, you have to do it now. Final question, Braca. I believe that we live our lives in chapters. So if I had asked you this question 20 years ago, you'd probably have a different answer. But right now, in this chapter of your incredible life, what does success mean to you? Success means for me determination. As long as you're alive, you don't give up. You don't quit. For me, it's a very gentle blending between reality and dreams between reality and pushing boundaries, never giving up. 
I want to say thank you so much for being today's guest on the story behind her success. Thank you very much and pleasure being here today. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Braca Horowitz for sharing her incredible life story with us. Her book is called Soldier On, A Woman's Memoir of Resilience and Hope. It's published by Endeavor Literary Press. And thank you for listening. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone I should feature on the show, will you please reach out and nominate her today? Just go to CandyOterry.com. That's Candy with a Y. O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.